Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dirty Money. I'm your host, Ben Hedges, and we have Mike in the studio with us today. How are you doing, Mike? Good. How are you doing, Ben? I'm good. And we have an action-packed show ready for you guys today. So the Fed raised rates again, okay, on Wednesday, May 3rd. We're up to 5.25%. Now, this could be the last rate increase before they're forced to start lowering rates again to uh, save the economy, all right, to save America. Uh, and then we have uh, commercial real estate, possibly the next crisis after the banking crisis. We'll tell you all about why that is uh, in just a few minutes. We got Vice News or Vice Media Group going bankrupt. And it certainly is quite an interesting story involving uh, humans and donkeys. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Well, if you, if you read Elon Musk's version. And then uh, we've also got the SEC issuing the biggest reward ever to a whistleblower, something like $279 million. Find out why they did that, what it's all about later on in the show. First of all, though, if you are listening on any of the major podcast platforms, do give us a five-star rating. Share this podcast with your friends. If you're on YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram Reels, our tagline is at Dirty Money Show. So do look us up on those and uh, share our content as well. But first of all, Mike, let's get into uh, Chairman Powell of the Fed raising rates. Just another round of rate raising. Uh, what is this, the 10th one in the last year? I, mean, I think it's the 10th. Yeah. So rates, you can see they came down, obviously, in 2008 from around 5%, came all the way down to close to zero, basically zero. And then 2016, when Trump became president, they uh, they started raising them pretty quickly, actually, looking sort of like once a month, once every two months. Um, and then obviously, when COVID hit, They'd already started, I think they'd already started lowering rates a little bit, but then when COVID hit, it's like boom. Uh, but now we've got one of the, well, the steepest rate raise, certainly for the last 20 years. In history, we started 2022 at 0.08% on the fund market, right? Wow. And, and now we're we're at what? For 5.25%. Yeah. Yeah. 5 and literally in the course of, 14, 15 months, 6,000% it's gone up. That's the most that we've ever seen. The next closest one is from the 1970s when we were going up, or 2016 when Trump came in, we went up 200%. Prior to that, in the 70s and 80s, we were at 70, 80% increase. And that's when we were fighting inflation that was at, you know, 14%, 17% numbers. In the well, we probably years. are. We probably are fighting inflation that's at 14% if you if you go by the way they worked it out in the 80s. So it basically is the same, isn't it? Yeah, no, that, that's the whole thing is the whole inflation regulatory. How do we gauge what the baskets of good or goods are? If we were to put all eggs in there six, seven months ago, we would have had inflation at 80%. So it, it's just whatever they want to put in the basket to make it not seem as painful is what they're doing. Yeah. But fundamentally, I think he's going to have to keep raising rates. There's no question about it. I mean, the jobs well, report came out, came out today. And what did we add? 200, good, wasn't it? Yeah, 260,000 jobs. No one expected that. That's crazy. <laughs> it's such a it's such a weird economy we're in right now. It's sort of like we've got a recession going on and a boom with the stock market at all time highs you know? <laughs> and jobs, jobs increasing at record levels. <laughs> And then the thing, gold just hit, uh, is, is like, you know, $50 away 2000. from being our highest peak. It was at 2050 yesterday. 
you know, drop oh, wow. $30, $30 an ounce. But uh, it's, it is the weirdest uh, economic macro, micro that I think we're ever going to see. Well, yeah, I think it's because of just all the the money. I mean, they pumped like nine trillion or something into the economy because of COVID. So still some of that money is having an effect even now, you know, coming out of a a recession, weren't we? We came out of a sort of flash recession. So we were both recovering and going into a recession at the same time. So those those two things have sort of equalized and given us the economy we have now. Yeah, we're in the middle of, of tumultuous problems with the regional banking issues with with you know inflated numbers i mean i feel like there there's a tendency here to manipulate the market manipulate the actual speech and, and how we present things to people so that it actually shows a benefit and the truth is is that there is no uh, there is no way to put it except that this isn't normal What's happening right now is it's not the way it's supposed to be. The Fed uh, raising rates definitely has taken out a load of you know the regional banks. I mean that is the reason why these banks have uh, have failed because the bonds they held were yielding too low an amount, and they ended up having to sell them at a at a loss in order to satisfy people taking money out of the bank. So far, three was it four banks down or is it three? I think it's three uh, due to this reason. Yeah. Uh, so far this year. There's a couple more on deck right now. I mean, P PNC, yeah, yeah. PacWest got hammered this last week, but PNC Regional Bank, really big regional bank, put fifteen billion dollars of commercial real estate paper on the market at the beginning of the week. You saw their stock dip. They're still holding that over a hundred dollars a share, but all these regional banks are just getting attacked. But the interesting thing about the mortgage. And the federal federal rate is like, how does it affect everybody else? When you think of the reserve rate, you think of the mortgage rate increasing. So if they increase the, the rate from the Fed, then your mortgage increase. Well, in May and, and March and in April, they did increase, but the mortgage is decreased. So it's not the mortgage rate decreased. It's not necessarily goes along with that trend. Yeah. So here you can see what the mortgage rates are over the last 30 years. You can see that super peak right there. You had mortgage rates at, what is that, 17%, 20%. That's in the early 80s when they were trying to fight inflation. And then you see down towards our end where uh, recent times where the mortgage rates kind of shot up to what are, where the early two, or the mid 2000s, early 2000s. So it's interesting to look at it because how does it reflect to like an everyday person? 99% of the population doesn't deal with the Fed fund rate between banking loans from one another. But what affects everyday people is a mortgage rate, right? People buy homes every single day. People want to buy a home. That's kind of like the American dream. And right now you see the mortgage rates going up and down. We're at, you know, 6%, but we were at all time lows two years ago. So it's interesting to really think about how does the Fed rate really affect the everyday person and it affects it by knowing that it is reflective of what's available to give out and how much money we can lend. Yeah. And the housing market is, uh, it's pretty slow right now because of the, uh, the feds whole, uh, raising rates, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's calmed down. I mean, and 21, it was the housing boom to 22. You saw everything go crazy. People are paying, you know, 
sometimes $50,000 over asking price almost across the country on different houses. And for the last three months, um, we're starting to really stabilize and there's a little bit of an uptick uh, in the cost of homes. Uh, a lot of that has to do with, you know, there being such a tremendous bubble after COVID of people wanting to move, get out of wherever they were at. You know, you spend a year in a house, you're like, all right, I'm done with this house. The mortgage rates averaging right now at six and six and a half percent to seven point four, depending on what your lender's doing and and what your credit score is. But you know that's how it affects. And it's interesting. You look at the previous Fed chairs that dealt with crazy inflation, Paul Volcker and Arthur Burns. Right, Volcker pretty much controlled the '80s. Burns pretty much controlled the '70s when it comes to the Fed chair position. And, and they both were fighting inflation by raising federal rates. And it, it's, you know, I think Volcker probably had the biggest challenge because Burns raised it up until 74 and then he lowered it. And he thought he was doing something well. And then he had to raise it again because inflation was coming around the corner in 78. And so now, oh, you know, there's Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Fresh out of 1971. Um, so, yeah. Uh, he, he had to definitely backtrack and Arthur Burns had to backtrack too. And I think Jerome Powell doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to backtrack yeah. and say. They're already know, talking about that though. I mean, right. on, on, you know, analysts on the news and stuff, they're already saying, Hey, maybe come July, they're going to actually start lowering a little bit. I, I don't think he's going to lower the rates until he absolutely has to. He, I, I, how I would view it is there's a recession that's going to have to kick in before he starts to lower rates again. I think we'll see a raise in June, raise and probably another one. We might go stale in June where nothing, no change, but in July we're going to see one. We'll see it until October when we start to see the economy switch a little bit and I think take a little bit of a dive. But ultimately it's a really weird environment right now with everybody is how much is going on. Like the, the jobs don't make sense, but when you look at it, really, baby boomers quit working after COVID. Anybody that was close to the age of 62 just said, you know what? I'm just going to retire early. I'm going to call it a day. 59 and a half, you can start getting your Social Security, you know, if you paid into that and you've done it. So people were just kind of calling it a day after COVID. And now our housing, our employing market is drying up. So we need people to go to work still. You see everywhere you go, you know, uh, now hiring, now hiring, now hiring. And it's interesting. All right. So we talked about the banking crisis and the interest rates. Let's talk because there is something that could signal the catalyst for the next crisis in the economy. And Charlie Munger, the right-hand man of Warren Buffett, certainly thinks so. So he was speaking at the Milken Institute last week, and he basically started talking about commercial real estate. And, you know, so... Commercial real estate, commercial loans, you're not talking about fixed 30-year fixed rate mortgages here, like a residential loan. You're talking about commercial loans. A lot of them are variable rate, and a lot of them are shorter term as well with higher payments. So uh, right now, obviously, we have you know interest rates going up, and uh, there's actually a chart we've got where you can see how many are variable rate compared to regular fixed rate. So here we go. So yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> you can see fixed rate loans to businesses versus variable rate loans. I mean, it's like three to one or something. So when the, the interest rates go up with the Fed raising rates, you get 
the interest rates on all those loans are going up. But then combine that with the fact that we actually have record low occupancy rates in office buildings and any, any other type of commercial, particularly office buildings. Uh, and this is because during COVID, a lot of people started working from home, all right? Entire offices were cleaned out. No one was there. Everyone was working at home. But a lot of the companies realized, wait, <laughs> we actually don't need these offices. We, we, work, you know, we worked fine with people answering phones from home. We figured out a system to do it. We could just continue doing this and uh, you know, not have the overhead of office rent. So a lot of, a lot of businesses actually never came back to the city, to their offices. And then you've also got certain cities like San Francisco and Chicago where they've got rising crime right now in these places due to certain policies that they have enacted. And you can see vacancy rates in offices of up to 19% in these cities, which are really, you know, record high rates. So you've got this perfect storm of two things, the variable interest rates rising and the vacancy rate uh, rising uh, in these offices as well, which is signaling that this could be the next crisis in commercial real estate as, uh, you know, owners can't afford to pay the mortgages because of occupancy is low and interest rate is high. Yeah, and that's what's happening right now is those regional banks are a lot of the lenders that gave them the, the mortgages. They put up the money for for these. So you have this kind of perfect storm for the regional banks. Plus, you have what's going on with the vacancy from COVID. And I think in 20 years, people are going to look back and say the pandemic of 2020 killed commercial real estate offices. And, and that's what's going to end up happening. Because if you're a large company, you have, let's say, $10 million a year in real estate space that you lease for your, your staff. Now the staff can go home and you don't have to pay for any of that real estate space. It's a, it's a win-win yeah. for your entire company. Your, your staff's happy. They're at home with their families. Plus you're saving money. What's the better way to do business? Yeah, we, uh, we had an office in Manhattan during the pandemic and we negotiated down the rent. We actually, we moved offices during the pandemic because we got a way better deal from someone else because the, the prices had been driven down. Uh, we first negotiated with our guy a lower rate, and then we actually found someone else who undercut him even more and moved to a better office. I felt really sorry for the guy when I terminated the lease. You can see occupancy rates steadily rising throughout. It was 9% before the pandemic, and you can see up to 12% in 2022. And then this chart is slightly out of date. So you've got some cities uh, I guess that's the overall average for the country, but some cities are up to 19%, which is quite a high rate that's really going to have a, a lot of impact on um, the finances of those companies that own those offices. Yeah, we, we left our office in Manhattan at the, around the same time, the end of 2020, just said, nope, we're not going to renew the lease. No one was there. No one went there for 10 months. We had all yeah. types of furniture and couches. We even told them to keep the furniture and keep the desks, and we all just stayed in our homes where we still work to this day. A lot of the office buildings are seeing transformed into residential units. Like in Detroit, a lot of those uh, former office buildings are being turned into apartments. That's happening. And I think it's gonna happen more and more as this generation, you know, Gen Z says, I wanna live in the city and be amongst people. Then you're gonna start seeing more and more of those buildings having to convert to actually bring back the revenue that they lost. New York City charges you like an 8% corporation tax on a on a business that should be a pass-through business with no corporation tax, right? Just So in the future, maybe all the business is going to move to Hoboken in New Jersey. It's just across the river. You could still go into New York from there, but just put their office outside. 
Yeah. Quick reverse. Everybody works in Hoboken and lives in Manhattan. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty interesting. I, w I wouldn't mind that. I've done the I've done the opposite. Lived in you know Brooklyn and then traveled to Manhattan. All right. So we got a great story for you next. Okay. So Vice Vice Media they have gone bankrupt and they're now trying to sell themselves to their lenders one of which is Soros Fund Management, okay? I thought this was so funny. You kind of can't make this stuff up, right? Because Soros, I mean, everyone talks about get woke, go broke, right? With Vice. I mean, they're kind of one of those woke companies and Soros obviously is the guy who funds most of the, uh, well, he's, he's the biggest Democrat donor, put it that way. He's the biggest donor to left-wing, um, you know, pack, uh, super PACs and uh, political parties and stuff. So yeah, Vice Media, um, and, you know, obviously, Elon, if you didn't see Elon Musk's tweet, it was very funny. It's like, it's been a while since they made any quality content. And you've got this, um, there we go. <laughs> I don't want to say the, the name of it, but you've got this video about uh, relationships between humans and donkeys, which is uh, very bizarre. But I guess, you know, it's called Vice. So it's, um, yeah, they covered some pretty dark and uh, twisted stuff throughout their, uh, throughout their time. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, here, let's take a look at this from uh, the Wall Street Journal. So Vice Media is nearing a deal for senior lenders, including Fortress Investment Group and Soros Fund Management, to acquire the troubled media company out of bankruptcy at a valuation of around $400 million, according to people familiar with the matter. Okay, it's always people familiar with the matter. But anyway, <laughs> that's the, uh, the Wall Street Journal's uh, exclusive report. I guess they got the scoop on that. But check this out, Mike. Vice, um, it was valued at, I think it was yeah, $5.7 billion in 2017. Okay, supposedly valued at $5.7 billion. And its latest valuation has now been reduced to just $400 million. Um, I, I don't even think they're worth $400 million. I, I mean, I remember when Vice came out and I was like, well, this is pretty interesting. This is hard-hitting stuff. They're going in and, and you know, doing all the drug stuff, looking at all the, you know, the degenerate stuff of our society and, and kind of really breaking it down for people. And then over the last, you know, 10 years, it's just gotten pretty, pretty bad, you know, and that was like the first two years where you're like, okay, wow, this is, this is pretty legitimate. And now when you go on device, you're like, I, I just feel like I'm going to throw up. Like, what, what is this? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I remember their North Korea video. Do you remember that from like 11 years ago? He goes on a vacation to North Korea. And that was actually the founder, Shane, the founder of Vice. And and it was really good. He like goes yeah. on vacation. He like, yeah, it was really cool. But now it just seems like, A, they're really capitalizing on the degenerate stuff to hook you in, like taboo topics. Uh, and it's pretty disgusting, some of it. And uh, B, they did, they did get woke, go broke kind of thing. I mean, they, they're pretty woke, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, if you're going to be a documentary-based film company, you can't just focus on, you know, left-wing topics or right-wing topics. You need to present what is going on with the documentary. It's supposed to document the, the happenings of the world, not to present some kind of position of left or right. So that, that I think that's a big problem is that they didn't realize that their audience really wasn't left and it really wasn't right. It was people looking for information on subjects that mm. were not 
heavily followed. Yeah, uh, and they also, of course, lost. Uh, they lost Trump. A lot of media, when Trump went out of office, they went. They got in trouble because Trump was their biggest cash cow, reporting on Trump. Um, and you know, you see BuzzFeed News uh, going out of business, and now Vice going out of business. All of the ratings of other TV channels like CNN tanking as well. Uh, as soon as he went out of office, another thing that happened to Vice uh, actually also pretty recently was that they had this deal with a Greek broadcaster called uh, Antenna Group. And they terminated their years-long multi-million-dollar contract to buy uh, news content from Vice. And this was supposedly a bit of a, a lifeline to Vice that they had this contract with this Greek uh, broadcaster because they were actually broadcasting their, um, you know, their news stories in Greece, buying it. Um, and yeah, that was terminated, which kind of complicated their their bankruptcy a bit more. It makes the company less attractive to buyers and uh, they have to restructure their news division. And then this pushed. Um, so there's two companies that are looking to buy it. It's Fortress and Soros um, Fund Management, which are the lenders mm -hmm. to, to Vice. Soros Fund Management started in 1970 by Soros. Fortress, it's another venture capital global investment company. Is this another front? Soros Hedge Fund is the most... I, I couldn't even tell you, like, how do you get 20% returns 40 years or strong? He's the most profitable hedge fund in the world with an average of 20% returns every year. Like you want to put your money somewhere, you know, it's going to grow. I mean, I guess you go with that guy. You're, you're going to win, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't trust it still. You know, like that's crazy. 20% yeah. year over year. I wonder where the guy's a billionaire. And I, another thing I thought was kind of funny is actually a few months ago when they wound down BuzzFeed News, this was the headline in the Wall Street Journal, BuzzFeed News is shutting down, Vice World News could be next, right? They sort of foretold uh, what eventually happened because now this week, uh, Vice, of course, into bankruptcy and now trying to get bought. I blame I, the donkeys. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's definitely the donkeys that caused the problems. I mean, if... So want to hear something crazy? Fortress Investment Group LLC was founded as a private equity firm in 1998 by Wesley R. Edens, a former partner at, can you guess, BlackRock. Oh, yeah. The company that controls everything. Yeah. He is a former partner at BlackRock, and uh, he's the one looking to pull, uh, pull Vice out of bankruptcy with George Soros' fund. No coincidence there. That's why you always just got to ask those little questions. Who owns this other company? What's really going on here? Well, it's it's one of the former partners at BlackRock. I think, um, and you know, I think personally, Vice could end up just being a worthless company, though, because, you know, obviously, the, the sort of right wing people have, they don't watch it anymore because it's woke. Um, and probably a lot of the left wing people, they watched it during Trump's presidency because it was bashing Trump. But now Trump's gone. They don't have that major catalyst now and a lot of other stuff that it, they put it's just so degenerate and uh you know i don't think the, the world is really moving in that direction anymore i think actually there's you know there's really something to be said for quality content that uplifts people rather than uh you know degenerate content so and mike one more thing that about vice and the founding of vice that will blow your mind okay so the other guy in addition to shane the other founder of vice media uh gavin McInnes, is also the founder of the proud boys can you believe that? What? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Talk about control. Look, look at that. The Proud Boys are always the one that everyone calls out. You can't make this you stuff up. up. You know? 
So this guy's the founder of Proud Boys and the founder of Vice News. And Vice. Yeah, the founder of a woke left-wing media and the so-called right-wing, you know, white supremacist or whatever group, uh, the Proud Boys. <laughs> Who's really in charge of this world? I'm, I'm starting to wonder now. I, I start to think that any, any organization you hear of in the media that's being spoken about a lot by CNN or, you know, or whoever is not the real organization. It's just something that's been part of the narrative, you know, allegedly, allegedly. Wow. Part of a show. It's mind blowing. Anyway. And that's why they're, they're going down. It's because people have to start turning towards, you know, better things. You know, you want to wake up in the morning and think about good stuff, not bad stuff. You want to look towards yeah. divinity rather than towards, you know, evil things. It's just natural human behavior to say, I want good, not bad. It's right. Yeah. I mean, I might watch, you know, one vice piece on, on something shocking if it was shared on social media. But I wouldn't really want to actively go on a site where every single article or every single video is about like drugs, prostitution, donkeys, like weird things that just <laughs> mess with your mind, you know? Yeah, it's about as bad I feel as sorry for the reporters. Yeah, and that might be why they're, why they're having a financial trouble is not many people are sitting there going, I want to go into the 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 dungeons of society and record and report like it's already hard enough waking up every day having to put in all the effort but here let me pay you a lot of money so you can go and see the most filthy things the world has to offer like yeah probably, probably not a lot of people lining up to do that i don't think so um all right, let's uh, let's move on to this last story, Mike, and this is one that you wanted to talk about, so I'll let you take the lead on it. So the SEC has issued their largest ever whistleblower reward for $279 million. Yeah, so interestingly to think about this is the SEC is the largest reward ever for whistleblowers. This whistleblower act was created after the 2007-2008 financial crisis that kind of brought us into the recession. Uh, that was the worst time financially for the United States since the Great Depression. So this Dodd, it's called the Dodd-Frank Act. It was created on to keep the banks from doing any really dodgy stuff on Wall Street and a lot of different things that were involved in it. It also allowed for people to be whistleblowers and say, hey, this bank's doing something really dodgy. You should definitely investigate them. And how they do it is they reward you based on what kind of uh, involvement there is for the whistleblowers. So they'll give you anywhere from 5 to 10% of the revenue collected from the dodgy or illegal activity from those banking entities. So this is a reward of $279 million. That means there was about a $4 billion problem that was going on oh, that, the SEC, yeah, that the SEC fine. figured out. Um and so uh, I haven't really pinpointed it. The SEC doesn't tell you all the details. They keep all of the information from the whistleblowers, the companies. Everything's kind of hidden. Again, it's the wealthiest people in the world. They don't want to get put out on front street. You know, the guy that could have been a whistleblower could be somebody that's significant. It could be a CEO of a large corporation. Whatever the case is, he, he thinks that it's being done inappropriately. But the Dodd-Frank Act, it, it ties back into, I think, what's going on with the banking crisis as well right now. So the Dodd-Frank Act required any bank, and in 2007 and 2008, any bank that had over $50 billion in assets had to follow a stringent uh, 
requirement for investing their funds and loaning their funds to different people, companies, and different uh, activities that they were doing. But in 2018, well, Trump said while he was running that he's going to revoke the Dodd-Frank Act. That was the first thing he was, he's kind of running on that, said one of the first things I'm going to do is revoke the Dodd-Frank Act. He didn't. He waited until 2018 and he modified the Dodd-Frank Act, which allowed regional banks to under $250 billion to not be under the same type of scrutiny for checks and balances on what they're investing in. So now we have a banking crisis. And, and to give you an idea is institutions have custody of clients assets, but do not function as lenders or traditional banks. The new law provided for lower capital requirements and leverage ratios. So if they're loaning money, they don't have to have as much capital in the bank to loan. So now you have places like Silicon Valley Bank turns around and says, we're going to loan out all this money. We don't have all this money to actually loan. Well, now our depositors are calling for their money. We go belly up. So any bank that has under $250 billion in assets is uh, kind of exempt from the same kind of scrutiny that the larger banks like JP Morgan, uh, Bank of America, they're under. We also... With this, he changed the residential mortgage loans to, that depositors can hold for institutions uh, in 2018 for the Federal Housing Act and Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae for actually loaning money, not having as strict requirements for the people purchasing homes, which can be looked at as a good thing, can be looked at as a bad thing, because that was the big problem in the 2008 financial crisis was credit default swaps on mortgages. So people and banks were giving out mortgages to non-qualified customers or our buyers. And then the, the bank would take that paper and they would sell it in a big bulk. You know, they'd have 150 mortgages worth, you know, $100 million. And then they would sell it at, you know, maybe a dollar, half the cost of what they lent out. And then that created all the problems and ended up Freddie Mae and Fannie were holding the bulk of those mortgages and they had to clear them out somehow when they couldn't. And now you saw the collapse of 2008. So it's interesting to see, we're not going to run into the same kind of collapse, but I think the, the real estate issue commercially, and then you also have the less strict requirements on these regional banks, probably should have left it at 50 billion or more in assets. And you should have stuck with that. I don't think we would be actually seeing this at all because yeah. Their book started getting messy in 2019. This was created in 2018. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much the show today, guys. It's been a it's been a good one. We've uh, we've had some really interesting topics. You got anything more to add, Mike? No, just uh, check us out on our podcast. Download us. You can listen to the whole show there which is, is nice when you're driving, doing whatever you want. We, we cut this up in segments for YouTube, but we have the whole thing done at once. So check it out there. Make sure to give us a rating so that we can be at the top of the list, preferably a five-star rating. Five stars. Yeah, that's right. So on all the major podcast platforms, and then also if you're looking for micro content on uh, TikTok, Instagram Reels, or YouTube, Dirty Money Show is our handle, at Dirty Money Show. You can search us and please do share the reels with your friends. It means a lot to us. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Dirty Money.